Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, September 27th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the EPA administrator visits Jackson over the city's ongoing water system troubles. Then a new human trafficking research center is launched at a Mississippi university. Plus, what a prolonged pollen season means for allergy suffering folks in the state. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. People of Jackson, like all people in this country, deserve access to clean, safe, and affordable drinking water. Environmental Protection Agency Administrator Michael Regan was in the capital city yesterday, meeting with the mayor to discuss plans to update the city's water infrastructure. He says the federal government intends to have greater involvement in maintaining Jackson's water infrastructure. The EPA and Department of Justice issued a notice compelling the city to cooperate. If not, the federal agency will file an action against Jackson under the Safe Drinking Water Act. We want to pursue a very transparent process. Uh, We all know that there are compliance challenges with the city of Jackson. Uh, But that's not the end of the story. We also know that we need to chart a path forward. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, we have uh, a trusted uh, infrastructure in place uh, that will continue to pursue uh, the right financial choices and the right expertise in how we build a system that the people of Jackson can trust. And so today's conversation was a really good conversation about how do we chart forward on how do we chart forward on that path? Uh, This isn't something that's done in secrecy. We had a great conversation. Uh, The letter is a formality. Uh, The letter is out there for public consumption. And there are conversations that will continue with the governor, uh, with the congressional delegation, uh, with our pastoral leaders. Uh, We are here to ensure that we're moving forward in a very transparent way so that we're not here ever again. Regan says the city is prepared to cooperate, and he would prefer they maintain control over their water supply. He wants to make sure available resources under the current emergency orders are utilized before it's too late. There are resources on the table right now. There are millions of dollars on the table right now. EPA has put in contractual mechanisms. Uh, So has FEMA. The federal government is here to support the city of Jackson. At some point when the emergency order is lifted up or, or, or you know, um, sunsets, 
many of those federal uh, resources go away. We want to be sure that we are not uh, having that happen prematurely. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of discussions that have to happen, but I can say this. Uh, we didn't get into this situation overnight. Mm -hmm. We're not going to get out overnight. Mm -hmm. uh, so the ideal situation may be a, a, a little distance off, but we're going to continue to work towards mm -hmm. that. While the EPA administrator was visiting, a water main burst requiring a boil notice to be issued for more than 1,000 customers. Mayor Shokwe Antar Lumumba says the city is not dismissing any options when it comes to addressing the longstanding problems. I just want to be clear that the city of Jackson, above anyone, recognizes our limitations, right? Uh, and in recognition of those limitations, we don't reject the notion of assistance we don't uh, reject the notion of even a third party uh, coming in for operations and maintenance. Uh, I feel that it is my responsibility as the mayor of the city of Jackson to indicate to our residents what uh, reaches in, the best, in our best interest, uh, whether or not this is an agreement that, that we can trust, whether or not it moves us on a path forward to not only contend with things like staffing, not only contend with you know, uh, deferred or accumulated challenges over the better part of 40 years, where it puts us after, right? What does affordability look like for our residents? What is, you know, the path forward that allows us to not only maintain the system, uh, but to ensure that we don't move people away? Instead of moving people away, we want to lift people up. And that's what our objective is here. Even with the federal intervention, the overhanging question remains where control and ownership of the water system will go. I believe that our, our indication of, of believing that the city of Jackson should still have ownership of the system um, has been well communicated. Uh, I've also indicated that the city has been looking at third-party operations and maintenance for some time now. Uh, I also indicated that, that, that uh, those discussions were interrupted. Um, and so there seems to be uh, one common thread that we believe that a third party may be beneficial in augmenting our staffing, augmenting the needs of our, of our uh, water treatment facility. Uh, where there may be differences, I don't want to uh, litigate that right now at this moment, uh, but I will say that, that I believe what we have discussed today, uh, where the EPA is uh, trying to make sure that, as, as uh, Pastor Young so appropriately stated, regardless of your political affiliations or ideology, that we're focused on one common end and objective of making sure that there's reliability in our system. And that's where we are presently. Jackson's Mayor Shokwe Antar Lamumba. Coming up, a new human trafficking research center is launched at a state university. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, Larry Morrissey with the Arts Commission, reminding you to tune in for the Arts Hour. We have in-depth conversations with Mississippi artists, writers, musicians, and other creatives. The Mississippi Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 on MPB Radio or download it as a podcast. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. A Mississippi university is now home to the first human trafficking research center in the state. The University of Southern Mississippi School of Social Work now houses the first-of-its-kind center. 
for human trafficking research and training. The center was approved by the College Board earlier this summer and will be streamlining and analyzing data collected by the state and local agencies. Dr. Tamara Hurst is a co-director of the center as well as a professor of social work at USM. And she tells MPB's Lacey Alexander this is an opportunity for her program to aid in addressing a serious problem. We have a couple of forms. Uh, we have sex trafficking and there's labor trafficking. Both can happen to uh, adults, um, to youth, and we have both of these forms in our state. For adults, this is an exchange of sex uh, for something else, maybe uh, shelter or food um, or money, and there needs to be force fraud or coercion, so they need to be forced into the act to prove sex trafficking for adults. For youth, we do not need to prove forced fraud or coercion. So if a youth is exchanging sex for uh, a place to stay because maybe they've been kicked out of their home or for food or even for something tangible like hair or nails, um, that exchange of sex for something is considered also trafficking. And labor trafficking, it's an exchange of labor for something else, maybe a place to stay or, again, food. And forced fraud or coercion need to be present in, in that um, charge of labor trafficking. So explain to me what this research actually looks like. If I were a student using the center, what would some of the resources available to me be? So, uh, and, and again, it's not necessarily for students using the center, although we do have students work with us as interns or graduate assistants. But for somebody looking for some research or data on what's happening in the state, we collect our data from training uh, community partners, um, community professionals, whether it's law enforcement or behavioral health or health care. And we're also looking at how they're applying training information, what changes are happening in the workplace, how are they assessing for uh, survivors of trafficking, and then what resources are these survivors getting after that. So the, the data that we collect has to do with awareness and application of the information, and then hopefully some positive results for our survivors. Gotcha. And I understand this was approved over the summer, but is it actually being implemented now or at a later date? It's implemented right now. Uh, we had to wait for a little bit uh, before the IHL minutes were physically posted on their website before we could announce this, um, the center. But we have been uh, working on this actually since the beginning of the year. It went in front of the IHL uh, earlier this year before summer, and we're just now able to announce that it's that it's open. Awesome. And I also read in the press release that this center is the first of its kind in the state of Mississippi. Tell me what the School of Social Work at USM, what about that makes it a good place to house such a historical moment in uh, this kind of research? Uh, well, a, a few reasons. Number one, USM is an R1 research institution. So that's research at the highest level. Uh, we are also within the School of Social Work, closely working with many of our state agencies for example, I sit as one of the subcommittee chairs on the Mississippi. Members of that council include members of Child Protection Services um, from the Attorney General's Office. We have statewide human trafficking investigators, Division of Youth Services, Department of Mental Health. So the School of Social Work is involved with many of these state agencies, 
making it a great place to do something that's collaborative uh, and also effective. And I did some research on you guys' website, and I saw where one of the goals of the center is to prevent the spread of misinformation. What are some misconceptions about this topic that you hope to counter with this research? That is a great question. We are often confronted with comments like, uh, that doesn't happen here in this state. And I think part of that reason is because of the term trafficking. People reflect back to movies maybe that they saw or or things that they've seen on social media about people being kidnapped in white vans, or they think about the movie Taken, and that's not what we see in this state. That's part of the misinformation we're trying to fight. What we see in this state are uh, marginalized populations, maybe persons um, living in low-income areas, persons that uh, maybe don't have a lot of education or a lot of awareness about how they might be manipulated. And this is what exploiters look for. We have a, a lot of youth in our foster care system. And across the United States, foster care youth are incredibly vulnerable to traffickers. Maybe they don't have family connections, uh, or maybe they've experienced some kind of trauma that placed them in foster care. That makes them even more vulnerable. So we're not talking about people getting kidnapped off the street, although that does happen. Uh, what we're talking about are people that are manipulated because they have some survival needs, maybe shelter or food, um, or they just need to have access to other, other things. And those are the people that get exploited. Great. Are there any kind of entities or um, groups that uh, the CHRT actively collaborates with? Uh, within the state of Mississippi, right now, we're working uh, a lot on the Gulf Coast, which involves our youth courts. Uh, it also involves the Gulf Coast Center for Nonviolence. Uh, we're working with the uh, Coastal Family Health Center, which is our, one of our state's largest federally qualified health centers. Uh, we are collaborating with William Carey's College of Osteopathic Medicine to help with training our health care providers. So we, we are collaborating. This is not something you can do as a single entity. You have to be involved with many entities who have a lot of different skills and experiences to contribute to eradicating this. Wonderful. Is there anything else that you'd like to comment on that maybe I forgot to ask you about today? Um, I would like to say that the data is important. Uh, we need to pay attention to how we are collecting our data for example, um, shot of what's happening in our state. And that's one of the reasons we put resources and to be able to plot a, a path forward. Dr. Tamara Hurst is co-director of the Center for Human Trafficking Research and Training at the University of Southern Mississippi. Coming up, what a prolonged pollen season means for allergy-suffering Mississippians. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hello, I'm Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advising firm and co-host of Money Talks. For over 10 years, Money Talks has been answering your personal financial questions and sharing knowledge about money management. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. 
This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. It's fall allergy season in Mississippi where pollen counts can reach emergency levels. Dr. Joshua Phillips at the Mississippi Asthma and Allergy Clinic says long, rainy summers are accounting for longer pollen seasons. And he tells our Rhonda Dunaway this year could be even worse for allergy sufferers like me. They've done many studies showing that, um, that that generally allergy seasons are getting worse. And so studies, you know, comparing allergy seasons over the course of the last 30 years or so have shown that, that generally uh, it's about a 20% increase in terms of total pollen counts and total number of, uh, of days where pollen counts are high. Um, and I think it was uh, the last time it was done, 2018, compared to uh, 1990 or 1991. And so generally we're... we're, we're um, uh, at the end of a of a losing trend with allergies, you know, pollen counts are generally getting worse each year. But we are in, in September; it's a peak for us, and so the the, the main allergen uh, uh, in bloom is ragweed, and so ragweed is an airborne pollen, and it circulates from really August until November in our area. And there are other uh, fall pollens, mainly weeds, also a little bit of grass. And uh, the reasons why we have higher pollen counts, you know, are complicated, but it, it does relate to climate change and, uh, and things like that um, more than anything else. And, uh, you know, as you look at the incidence of allergic diseases, unfortunately, um, the conditions that we treat are also on the rise. And so you have more patients with allergic rhinitis and more patients with, um, with asthma. And the third week of September is, is um, uh, it has been studied and uh, because of an increase in ER room uh, visits um, uh, uh, for asthma exacerbations. There's been it has a new name. It's called Asthma Peak Week. Okay, so the, in the United States, there's a peak in ER visits due to asthma uh, right about the third week of September, and they're not all blamed on ragweed. You know, we have other things that are triggering patients at this time of the year. So rhinovirus would be probably the biggest thing from kids going back to school, and then RSV and other viral illnesses. Starting to see some flu cases. Um, and uh, and then even mold from you know leaves that are falling from the trees and stirring up mold. If we have a high rainy season, uh, somewhat like this year, you know you see more more uh, mold spores in the air around this time. So if we're watching the weather and we're looking at the pollen levels, um, especially for patient for asthma patients, what level are is dangerous? What what do we need to be looking for? You know, generally what is publicized are indexes, and so. Um, uh, I don't know that there is um, a, a certain uh, specific level, but when we're getting into high indexes, we're we're usually in the nine to twelve range, you know, um, uh, of an of an index of pollen counts, and those are published on weather.com and pollen.com, and so you know anything in the in the eight to twelve say range, you know, is going to be high, and it's going to nice, show you that nice red graph, you know, that's going to be high. Uh, uh, on the bar graph, you know, showing that it's at the highest that it can be, and so that's really what we're looking at right now in this in this um, in this fall season. Um, uh, again, it's a mixture of, of fall pollens, but the predominant pollen is going to be ragweed there. Uh, what does what can a person or a patient say do to prevent um, having a, a bad attack or inflammation? Do is that the folks that go into the ear, nose, and throat clinic to get shots all the time, or what do patients do to help prevent um, getting going to the ER? 
Well, when we're just talking about nasal allergies, the biggest thing is being consistent with your medicines. And so, you know, um, over-the-counter, now that we have over-the-counter in, uh, intranasal corticosteroids, so um, uh, nasal steroid sprays, you know, as they're called, would be things like Flonase and Nasacort and Rhinocort. So those are probably the most important, the, the cornerstone, really, uh, of, of uh, preventative care in terms of, of controlling your allergies from a day-to-day you know, they're very easily available, um, uh, and they do decrease uh, most nasal allergy symptoms. Um, they're not helping so much with the back of the throat. You know, we really need to rely on antihistamines to to improve those symptoms. And so your your cetirizine or Zyrtec, your fexofenadine or Allegra, you know, these are medicines that, that are that are the, the newer generation antihistamines. Um, they work better than than the old generation, like Benadryl. You know, they last longer and they cause it to be less sedated. So this would be the the, the first and second thing that you would try. Okay, and and if you're using those medicines and you're getting through the season. That's a, a, a perfectly reasonable way to start. You know, um, in my clinic, we see patients who have tried that first and they have failed. And so they're looking for the next level thing to do. And so there could be other prescription medicines that we might use to control their symptoms, like Montelukast, which is uh, otherwise known as Singular. Yeah. And then, of course, we're allergy testing and we're discussing immunotherapy, which is uh, a treatment where we you know, are, are giving allergy shots, um, uh, uh, giving the patient what they're allergic to every week over time to decrease their sensitivity. How does a person, once they are inflamed or have a sinus infection, how do they tell the difference between a cold and the uh, just reaction to allergies? That's right. It's really, it's very difficult to now. And with COVID uh, as well, it just adds another layer of complication here. And so, you know, generally patients who have nasal allergies every day of their life, they're having symptoms to some degree. Okay. So they may have good days and bad days and good seasons and bad seasons, but I don't very often have patients come in with, you know, I never have allergy symptoms. And now for the last three weeks, I've been miserable. You know, that's usually a red flag that there's some uh, infection going on here. And so it certainly could be a viral infection, could be a bacterial type sinus infection. And and, uh, when symptoms are new and and hit hard, um, because a lot of the symptoms are the same. I mean, patients with viral illnesses, rhinovirus, RSV, COVID, they're generally having runny nose, they're having sneezing, they're having drainage down the back of their throat, causing sore throat. They're, mm-hmm. um, uh, one, one difference is fever. Fever is never going to be from allergies. And so if a patient is having fever, you know, that, that almost always indicates an infection. And, and so this would be the time to go ahead and do a COVID test and, you know, go to the urgent care wherever you might need to go to have a strep test or, a, or another type um, a flu test, possibly if you're running fever, uh, in addition to a COVID test. But, but allergies uh, are generally going Going to be more chronic. They're they're happening over a longer period of time. They're not quite so intense, although they can be intense. And the, most importantly, they're recurrent. It's every year this time I'm having the same thing. Not it really hit hard all of a sudden, you know, and I feel sick. So that's right. the, the biggest difference that I look for. All right, thank you for that. So, Absolutely. is there um, anything else that we haven't talked about that you think that maybe our listeners uh, need to know about? I just want to reiterate that this is the time of the year that asthmatics are um, at, at particularly vulnerable to um, to exacerbation. And so we just want to really mention that that it's so important for asthmatics to take their controller medicines now. So if they're maybe take breaks in the summer or they feel like they can stop their medicines when they're doing well, you know, the, the asthma controller medicines really keep people out of the hospital and keep people out of the ER uh, that do a great job of preventing asthma exacerbations or flare-ups from pollen or from colds and viruses. And so this is the time of the year to take those medicines. If you have a daily asthma controller medicine, 
you know, you should be taking it now to prevent those problems. Dr. Joshua Phillips is an allergist at the Mississippi Asthma and Allergy Clinic in Jackson. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.